turn in your Bibles this morning with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. First Corinthians chapter seven. And there are pew Bibles in front of you that you're welcome to use. First Corinthians chapter seven. But before we start, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for being such a great God who all of creation cries out how great and glorious and how loving, how perfect and true and holy and powerful you are. And Lord, we can sing your praises today because of the blood of Jesus shed on our behalf. We can approach you. We can be purified, made holy, and acceptable to you because Jesus died in our place. And Lord, help us today as we look at areas of our life where we can better live in a way that would please you and honor you. Lord, we do that not so that we can earn your favor, but we do that because we love you and are thankful for what you have already done for us. I pray that you will help this message to be clear and make sense that I want to trip over what you've given me. Lord, I pray that it'll accomplish what you have given this for and that we will be able to take something from your word and the time spent together here in God's house. I pray you bless this time in Jesus' name. Amen. In June 1894, the U.S. Congress passed a formal act marking the first Monday in September each year to be known as Labor Day. According to the Department of Labor's website, the holiday Labor Day was birthed from the rise of the labor movement and is dedicated to the social and economic achievements of American workers. It is a yearly national tribute to the contributions workers have made to the strength, prosperity, and well-being of our country. The holiday was marked by parades of workers um, exhibiting the strength and spirit decor of the trade and labor organizations and often included a festival for the recreation and amusement of the workers and their families. The Department of Labor finishes its article on Labor Day with these words. The vital force of labor added materially to the highest standard of living and the greatest production the world has ever known and has brought us closer to the realization of our traditional ideals of economic and political democracy. It is appropriate, therefore, that the nation pays tribute on Labor Day to the creator of so much of the nation's strength freedom, and leadership, the American worker. It's kind of ironic, however, that that act passed in the midst of the Pullman strike centered in Chicago that saw 125,000 railroad workers from 29 different railroads quit 
rather than handle Pullman cars. In fact, the day after the Labor Day Act was passed, there was a train derailing and there were arsons. And within a couple weeks, there was a standoff with government troops and 30 people were killed. This illustrates the odd relationship we as a people and a nation have towards labor. Work is noble. Workers are worthy of celebrating. But work is hard, and sometimes workers demonstrate in ways that we don't celebrate. Closer to home, in our own lives, work can pay the bills. Work can be a blessing to our family. But work can also be hard and hard to come by. And work can bring sorrow even more than blessing. A later resolution in the history of Labor Day set aside the Sunday prior to Labor Day to be known as Labor Sunday and was dedicated to the spiritual and educational aspects of the labor movement. Um, Not because I read that resolution, but today I'm going to use Labor Sunday to look at labor, to look at work from a biblical perspective I hope that this message can be a blessing to you, whether you are too young to be a worker or whether you have looked at your working years in the rearview mirror. This idea of work and what the Bible says about it means something to us and hopefully will be able to be a blessing to all of us here in this room. So we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 17. We're going to read a section here. And dissect it in a minute here. But 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 17. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who has called he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freed man of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called is a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. So, brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. In whatever condition you were called, Remain with God. Now, for Labor Day, most of us just like the fact that we don't have to labor on Labor Day other than laboring over our grill. So I want to take a little bit of a detour before we jump into this text and do a brief overview of labor or work in the Bible to set the stage for how this text, which doesn't have the word labor, how it applies to labor. So first of all, my first point is a look at labor. A look at labor. And there's three main things that the Bible teaches us about labor really quickly. First of all, 
the drudgery of work. It's a really fun word, drudgery of work. The fall resulted in work being wearisome, work being painful, requiring toil. In Genesis 3, part of the curse was that out of, by the sweat of your work, you're going to be able to bake bread. It's going to take labor. And in fact, the curse on the woman was that she was to bear children in sorrow and in pain. And the same Hebrew word is used for the pain of childbirth and the pain of work. And in fact, um, in many languages, that's the case. The tra- a woman's travail and the travail of work. A woman's toil at labor. You know, you even call the delivery of a baby labor. And labor is hard. So both the man and the woman both get blessed with labor. Um, in the negative sense, the hard, difficult, painful, sorrowful sense as a result of the fall. So work is wearisome. Sometimes work is in vain. Labor is in vain. Another reaps from your labor. If you're like us with our garden, we labor really hard and nothing grows at all. So labor is in vain in that way. Um, Or you labor and then you go on vacation and everything spoils while you're gone. Um, In Isaiah... Talking about the reverse of the fall, he says, speaking of that time when the child can play over the snake's hole, when the lion can lay down with the lamb, during that time, you'll be able to work and get the reward of your work. You'll build a vineyard and eat it, rather than a neighboring force coming and stealing all of the proceeds and the benefits that came from your vineyard. So work often results... In vain. Sometimes we work really hard. We think we're on the on the way to a promotion, and we get a pink slip. You know, you, you put all that effort in, and now you got to start all over from scratch. That's what happens in a fallen world. Work can be wearisome. Work can be full of drudgery. And um, the author of Ecclesiastes, who is the wittiest man ever. He said, what has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation. Even in the night, his heart also does not rest. This also is vanity. Ecclesiastes 2, 22 and 23. There are many other places in Ecclesiastes where the author says that work is in vain. Work, you're striving for the wind. It's a pointless thing. So the drudgery of work, the Bible teaches that work is drudgery. Work also has dignity, the dignity of work. Um, One of the most amazing things about the Bible is that God works. So in the ancient Near East, as well as in the ancient Greek mythology, the gods were loafers. They did nothing. In fact, When they had to do something, they created humans so that they could do it for them. They didn't want to work. That was the picture of the gods. Against that backdrop, the the picture that we see of the true God in the Bible stands out so much different. 
God is laboring for six days, making everything perfect. And then he sits down and rests on the seventh day, having taken ultimate satisfaction that everything he did was very good and resulted in very good results. God is a worker and he's described as a worker. In fact, Jesus, he said, my father is working and I am working too. And then the Jews picked up stones wanting to stone him in John chapter 5. Jesus participated in the work that God works. God is not lazy. He's not a loafer. He doesn't depend on us. The cattle on a thousand hills are his, not ours. And God doesn't need us to keep them going. And not only is God a worker, but humanity is created in God's image. And they're placed in the garden to work and to tend and to keep it. So work was given to Adam and Eve before the fall. Work is not inherently tainted. Work is a way that we image God. It's a way that we follow God's pattern. Um, The animals don't work in that sense, not as an image of God, worker. But we do. We follow in God's pattern of dignified, creative, productive, beautiful, producing work. So work is dignified in Scripture. Um, Unlike what some of the medieval um, or some of the Eastern religions where work is not dignified, instead what's dignified and what's set apart is just sitting there in the same place for 10 years doing nothing and just meditating. And even in um, Martin Luther's day, which we'll get to, you know, they, they would say the monks, they're closer to God. That's better. And he said, no, the milkmaid is just as important as a monk and does work just as important. In fact, more important. So work is dignified in Christianity. And then there is the delight of work. So the drudgery, the dignity, and the delight of work. God has created the world in such a way that sowing normally results in reaping. And the way that you sow uh, depends on how you reap is how you sow. Galatians 6, 7. Hard work has benefits. That's the way God built the world. And in Ecclesiastes, we see that underscored that the benefits of work actually are something that we can delight in. In fact, work is our lot in life, the author of Ecclesiastes says several times. And we can rejoice in work done well. Ecclesiastes five eighteen and 19. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. And then earlier in chapter 3 of Ecclesiastes 12 and 13, he says, I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. Just when when we want to throw work under the bus, we find out it's actually God's gift to man. There is something satisfying Something joyful in work that's accomplished. 
work that brings its benefit. There's a delight that we can and should take in a job well done. Now, with that in mind, that biblical concept of work, let's look at our text and try to understand how our text fits in with this idea. So the second point here is a consideration of our calling. So we had a look at labor and now a consideration of our calling. So again, verse 20 kind of sums up the main point of the passage. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Now, if you know anything about the book of 1 Corinthians... You'll know it's a long book and it has lots of different things it talks about because the city of Corinth and the church at Corinth had lots of problems and questions. And so there's all kinds of different things in the book. And in chapter 7, the main issue is that there's a question about what, what kind of life should we live given the fact that Jesus is coming really, really soon. So they they understood Paul to say Christ is coming soon. They also saw his problems and they were having their own difficulties. And so some people were saying, you know, it's better off for us to, you know, remove ourselves from these unbelievers altogether. So my wife is not a believer. I am. I should just get rid of her and then I can follow the Lord. Or um, others were saying, you know, Because of everything that's happening and coming and the the persecution that's on the way, don't even worry about getting married. Don't even worry about working your job. Just leave it all and go to the hills and declare Jesus. And so there were these different ideas of what we should do with life. And this passage particularly talks about singleness and marriage and the issues of being married to an unbelieving spouse and what to do with that. And Not only were there differences of opinion, but people would say, my opinion is the only right opinion, and yours is totally wrong. We're the right ones, you're not. So in the midst of all of that, here's Paul trying to explain what to do. And so in his verse 17, he says, this is my rule in all the churches, which is said several times in 1 Corinthians, and each time it's kind of like a hint, by the way, that means your church is wrong. (laughs) So this is what all the other churches do. I'm the apostle. You're not. You're wrong. Listen to me. This is how you should do it. And what he's trying to say and what he says three different times is the charge. So we saw the context. Now, the um, before we get into the charge, there's the calling. So several times in this section, he talks about the calling. Um, Each person lead the life the Lord has assigned to him to which God has called him. They should remain in the condition he was called. In 1 Corinthians and in the New Testament, we have to understand the word calling. If you were to turn to the first chapter of 1 Corinthians, the, the second verse or the first verse, Paul called. So Paul is called. Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. Called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. So the idea of calling is wrapped up in called to be saints. And verse 9, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son. So there's this special calling 
to become a believer, a calling to follow Jesus, a call to become a fisher of men in, in a sense, if you will, a spiritual calling that makes you a believer. Now he says, I'm, I'm the church of God to the saints called out to be believers, to be faithful. One interesting thing is the word call in Greek, this is bonus, you're not going to be judged on this, but is kaleo, kaleo. And the word for church, which someone has to know what the Greek word for church is, anybody? Ekklesia, which means ek kaleo, out, call, call out, ekklesia. So the group of people who are called out is the church. So in the, in the very word church is the word call, you're called. The church is full of people who are Believers, they were called to be believers. Their, their calling is to be a believer. And that's what ultimately is the point. Calling is to be a believer. You need to live for Christ. And then in verse 24 of chapter 1, he says some interesting things along these lines. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks... Christ, the power of God. Verse 26, consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards or powerful or of noble birth. But God shows what is foolish to shame the wise. God shows what is weak to shame the strong. God shows what is low and despised in the world. And he goes on. So calling was from Jewish and Gentiles, both. It was from the weak and there were some strong it was from the lowly and some of the high class. God called people from all backs, backgrounds and all, all parts of life into one church for his purpose. So now that is the backdrop of 1 Corinthians on calling. So you're called from different areas. You're called to be a believer, to follow the Lord. And then in 1 Corinthians 7, you're called from a specific situation. So... Verse 17, let each person lead the life, or it's uh, the word to walk in the way, walk in the way that the Lord has assigned to him to which God has called him. Verse 24, whatever condition, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. So you're called to be a believer in a particular scenario, a particular life situation. A calling comes to us when we are in a variety of conditions. And there are as many different conditions of our calling as there are people here. Everyone has a different situation in life from which they became a believer and in which they hear God's call to believe and to follow him. So that's underlying our text. There is this weird context of Corinth and the questions about should we even do life as normal? Should we just totally stop marrying should we should we get rid of unbelieving spouses because this is such an important thing then there's the calling everyone is called in a particular situation to follow Christ well in that backdrop there's a charge that's repeated three times i read two of them just now stay in the position you were in when you were called remain with god in the condition you were in Verse 20 is the third one. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. So remain with God. Remain in the condition. Live the life God assigned you. 
Well, underlying this charge is the understanding that your situation in life is irrelevant to whether or not you can follow God's call. Your situation in life, Corinthian person, whether you're single or married, whether you have an unbelieving spouse or not, none of that matters. Whether you're Jew or Greek, whether you're male or female, whether you're a slave or whether you're not, doesn't matter. You can follow God where you are. And if you step back and see that, that's a profound truth. And it was actually society-altering, life-altering for the church. This idea that situation doesn't matter. Changing your situation doesn't make you more Christ-like than not. Changing your situation doesn't make you more holy than not. You need to stay where you are. You don't have to change. You can follow God where you are. So that's the main point of the text. And he illustrates it two ways. The first one is with circumcision and uncircumcision. And if there is any kind of thought that there has to be a situation that is more holy than another situation, he took the, the, the biggest one that there could be. He said, look, even circumcision, which... In the Old Testament, that was obeying God to be circumcised if you were a man. And if you weren't, you were not obeying God. Very important situation. And it can be changed. And in that culture, it could be changed either way. I won't get into that. But, so there is stuff going on here. But he says, this situation, if anything has religious significance, you would think, and there was a large group of people saying, hey, in order to really follow God, you've you got to be circumcised too. He says, that doesn't, he says that means nothing. Look at verse 19. Neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision. It doesn't mean a hill of beans. Changing your situation to become a Jewish-looking person doesn't make you have any better standing with God. In fact, he says, don't do it directly. Do not become circumcised. Or do not change to become in a way that appears to be uncircumcised stay as you are the other situation is slavery we call it bond service here because slavery that we think of is a little bit more severe than the slavery of roman days it was not quite as severe as what we think of when we think of slavery so a lot of texts say bond service but basically the same thing the person couldn't just choose to leave their job they were a slave. So he doesn't say, don't stop becoming a slave. He says, don't be concerned about it. If you can win your, 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 your freedom, go ahead. It's not, again, the main thing is not that you have to stay where you are. It's that changing where you are doesn't matter. Where you are in life doesn't matter when it comes to the call of God. So the two different illustrations, whether you're slave or free, don't be concerned about it. That's verse 20. Do not be concerned about it. Um, if you're circumcised or not, don't change it. Those are illustrations that your situation, your, where you were when you were called, does not contribute anything to your Christianity, to your ability to follow God. So ultimately, the takeaway from here is contentment. 
So we have context, calling, charge, and contentment. The takeaway for the Corinthians is that they can be content in whatever condition they are in. Perhaps there is a slave in Corinth, and his job is scooping stuff that comes out of animals in the stalls. And that is what he is paid to do as a slave, and he cannot change his vocation. He is stuck, literally stuck, in more ways than one, doing that job. His temptation would be to say, well, versus this other guy over here who can debate in the scholastic arenas about the, the, you know, the benefits of Christianity versus following Apollo, you know, I am lowly and cannot even hold my head up with this guy. If I, sh- if I could escape, then I, then I could read the Bible more. Wouldn't God want that to happen? No. In the, in the mud, in the mire, you're just fine there. God called you there. God has a plan for you there. And we'll, we'll dig into this a little bit more. Contentment. They don't need to change in order to be able to please God fully. They can remain with God in his presence. Be before God, which is what verse 24 talks about. To remain with God is to remain in light of God's presence They can be with God in light of his presence in whatever situation they find themselves in. What counts is not circumcision or uncircumcision, but keeping God's commands. Living for him as a Gentile or a Jew. In fact, we are bought with a price, it says towards the end of the text. We are bought with a price. So the fact that we are called leaves us with no option but to be God's servant. So if we're actually a slave, we're free in Christ. If we're actually a free man employing people, we actually are a slave to Christ because Christ owns us as followers of him. Now, from this text, specifically this text, verse 17 and following, um, as well as other texts, the notion of God's calling and assigning us a specific life circumstance, the Puritans... Notably, William Perkins, the, one of the Puritan preachers following Calvin and Luther's lead, they taught the idea that God calls all of us to particular vocations. Now, maybe not everyone in here knows what the word vocation is, but vocation would be like you're going to be a doctor, and that's your calling in life to be a doctor, or you're going to be a milkman. That's your calling to be a milkman. So it's not about Christian Um, full-time service necessarily. It's that every different station of life is a vocation that you are called to be. Perkins defined vocation as a certain kind of life ordained and imposed on man by God for the common good. A certain kind of life that is imposed on you by God for the common good. Calvin said that calling in this text was a lawful mode of life, a mode of life, a kind of life. Puritans approached the question of what vocation to choose as not simply being a question of what is best for them or their families, but what would best use the gifts God gave them and what would bring him the most glory. They felt obligated to live for the good of all and not merely for their own advancement or self-fulfillment. That is definitely a countercultural 
concept in light of today, especially in America where we feel it's our obligation to get as many steps up the ladder as we possibly can in our life. They're saying, wait a second, God puts you there for a reason. You better be careful in why and how you change your situation. Martin Luther also thought of vocation as a way that God worked indirectly to provide the needs of people. He said, when you pray for daily bread, you are praying for everything that contributes to your having and enjoying your daily bread. You must open up and expand your thinking so that it reaches not only as far as the flour bin and baking oven, but also out over the broad fields, the farmlands, and the entire country that produces, processes, and conveys to us our daily bread and all kinds of nourishment. In fact, Luther said that like a parent gives chores to children to accomplish things, but also to teach them as they accomplish the thing on the behalf of the parent, in the same way, the works that God has people do in the different stations of life are like the masks of God, behind which he wants to remain concealed and do all things. And so, even the humblest farm girl fulfills God's calling and vocation. Luther said, God milks the cows through the vocation of the milkmaids. So God is ordaining all of society to work together for the common good and for common grace. And he's doing that by, through a mask, inspiring each individual person to do what they should do. And so, in a sense, God is actually milking cows when the milkmaid goes out to milk the cows. So let's try to apply this concept of vocation to our situation today. Now, not everyone in this room works. So if you are a child going to school, your vocation in that sense would be to be a student, to be a child obedient, to be learning as a child should be. If you are past work, if work is in your rearview mirror, you're to be a good neighbor, to be a good grandparent, to be a good counselor, to be a good citizen. So you can apply this in your situation too. So the third point is a view of our vocation. A view of our vocation. So God called us to faith and obedience, and he assigned us a vocation from which to serve him. Again, verse 17, each person should lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and in which God has called him. So our work is a way to serve others and to serve God from where we were called. So God wants us to have faith in him and follow him, to obey him. And one of the ways that we do that is by living as a human being and working in the world that God made. Now, from that, we need to realize we do not have to be a full-time Christian servant in order to be a full-time Christian servant. We do not have to be a minister in order to minister. And we do not have to be a missionary in order to be a missionary. Now, I'm saying it with a tongue-in-cheek here. But there is a certain school of thought that says, you know, all of you people in the church, you got to come down and some of you have to give your life to full-time Christian service. And if you don't, then just know that you're a second-class citizen. And those people, they're first-class citizens. That's not in scripture. That is not in Martin Luther's vocabulary. 
he was especially concerned about that because in his day, the nuns and the monks, they were up here and everyone else was down here. In fact, everyone else thought they were three or four or five or maybe a hundred steps behind them on the road to heaven because they were doing uh, Christian work and all the rest of us are doing service, uh, manual work that has nothing to do, secular work that doesn't, that doesn't mean anything. That is not in Scripture. Martin Luther didn't find it in Scripture. We don't find it in Scripture. Every walk of life, every calling that you're in has inherent value. God created the world. If everybody decided to not be a baker and instead do something else more glamorous, no one would eat any bread. God has a purpose for everything and a purpose for everyone. We don't have to change our condition in order to be able to actually give God something worth value. God knew where you were when he called you. God knew where you would end up when he called you. And he has a plan for you where you are. That doesn't mean you can't serve him in that vocation. It doesn't mean you can't tell other people about Jesus where you are. It means you don't have to go to Africa to, in order to do that. But if you find yourself in Africa, do that. So that's one takeaway. Another one is God wants thoroughly Christian work, not just a Christian who happens to be a worker. So God just doesn't just want Christians who happen to be bakers, bakers, accountants, and mailmen. He wants us specifically to be Christian bakers, Christian accountants, and Christian mailmen. That doesn't just mean that we have a tract on our desk or in our pocket and we go to church on Sunday. Now, Dorothy Sayers, the Christian writer, elaborates. She says, The church's approach to an intelligent carpenter is usually confined to exhorting him to not be drunk and disorderly in his leisure hours and to come to church on Sundays. What the church should be telling him is this, that the very first demand his religion makes upon him is that he should make good tables. There's a lot of profound thought there. Our faith should transform how we work. And it is our job to find out how best faith should impact our work. And it may take more effort for some vocations than others. And we have all kinds of tools in our church library with talking with one another. Um, but a few quick principles. We need to be diligent in our work. Ecclesiastes 9.10, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. We should seek to please the Lord and not men. Colossians 3.23, whatever you do, work heartily is for the Lord and not for men. And we should do our work to the glory of God. 1 Corinthians 10.31, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So we need to find a way to be a Christian worker not just a Christian at work. Um, then maybe the primary takeaway here is some of you say, but I'm just a janitor. Or I don't have a diploma. All I do is flip burgers. Or I don't even have work. I'm disabled. Well, this text is telling us that no vocation and no calling or mode of life is too lowly or insignificant from which you can please God. You don't get a pass because you aren't a full-time Christian service, so therefore you can just do whatever you want Monday through Saturday and show up at church on Sunday. You have a responsibility to live for God no matter what station of life you find yourself in. 
You don't have to go to school to be able to serve God. You don't have to get a better job or find a wife or move out of that neighborhood to be able to do something for Christ. You don't have to own a home before you can really be a Christian neighbor. You don't have to change your situation. If you don't have employment, you still have a father or a son or a daughter. You have a relationship of some kind, whether it's a friend, a neighbor. There's some kind of situation in life from which you can live out your Christianity with someone else. Perkins, the Puritan, said, even if all you do is sweep or be a shepherd, you can find worth in what you do if you're doing that as a Christian. In fact, the Puritans applied the concept later in 1 Corinthians of how in a church, not everybody's the foot, not everybody's the head. We need to have eyeballs and elbows both. Not everybody can be the same thing. It all works together. They extended that to society as well. They didn't just assume society happens apart from God and God only cares about gifting for the church. Well, God cares about gifting for the church, but that extends even beyond. There's a a mission that each of us has uniquely outside the church into society. Along those lines, if we do have a college education and we aren't a janitor, we should not be looking down at someone who is a janitor or someone who is a different... And I say that, I know some great godly men of God who have been janitors. That's, that's one illustration. There are all kinds of different, different situations in life people can be in that we can be tempted to think down on them. Um, I was speaking with my grandfather who talked about going to the funeral of a man who was a garbage trash collector his whole life. And he thought going into this funeral that this guy's life, what a waste. And he walked away saying, wow, he actually had quite a service. He actually made, he was proud of what he did in helping the community by being a sanitation worker. So we need to be careful to have the eyeball, not look at the elbow and say, I don't need you in the context of this world. In fact, work itself or service of any kind can be worship to God if it is done for God's glory. Our work is good because of what it is, not what it makes us. Luther said of believers, even their seemingly secular works are a worship of God and an obedience well-pleasing to God. And he said, we can give ourselves as a Christ to our neighbors, just as Christ offered himself to us. Now, that's just an analogy. I don't believe that by being a sanitation worker and never telling anyone about Jesus, that that's all you need to do. That's, that's not true. We do need to give the gospel to people verbally, but we can find fulfillment in life by serving others and seeing our life's calling as fitting in with God's plan for this world. A final clarification Our text is not saying to never change your status. If you come to Christ as a single, it doesn't mean you have to stay single forever. If you are a child, hopefully you're going to grow up and hopefully you're going to enter the workforce and therefore change your situation in life. The main point of the text is you can serve Christ wherever you are. You don't have to change your situation. And if an opportunity comes to change our vocation, 
when it comes time to pick a major at college, when it comes time to decide what you're going to do, when it comes time to see are we going to change jobs or not, should I take this promotion or not, should I go into this field or not, the way that we look at that opportunity should be different than the way that a worldly person looks at it. Pastor Tim Keller puts it this way, the question regarding our choice of work is no longer what will make me the most money and give me the most status. The question must now be how with my existing abilities and opportunities can I be of greatest service to other people knowing what I do of God's will and of human need. I've only scratched the surface of what the Bible has to say about how to serve God on the job. I hope you are encouraged with what we did cover, however. God has a purpose for you and finds great significance in your life. What you do matters, and you may be the only person who can do something that God needs done. It may be that there is someone who could only hear the gospel from you in your particular situation, in your particular job. It may be that only someone in your situation can devote the time to prayer that results in a specific answer that blesses many. Perhaps you have a special ability to raise funds for mission projects, or maybe you are the only one who can decorate the sanctuary just right. There are other examples too. God has a world to run. He needs doctors and lawyers and clerks and cooks. He needs teachers and daycare workers. He needs mothers and grandfathers. He needs social workers and nurses. He needs sanitation workers too. Just think what life would be without faithful service in these areas. This Labor Day, I hope you take time to evaluate what your attitude has been toward the condition in which you find yourself now. God knows where you are. He called you. He knew you'd get here when he called you. He has plans for you where you are. You don't have to clean yourself up to be able to be used by him. You can be faithful where you are. I was blessed to be able to attend the funeral of Steve on Thursday. The testimony of Steve Sanquist that we heard at the funeral was a big blessing. He was an ordinary person doing extraordinary things as a believer in Christ right where he was. He was brightening the corner where he was. God wants us all to brighten the corner where you are, as the old song says. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, may we all find significance and lasting hope for life in and through our heavenly calling in Christ Jesus. Lord, we are citizens of heaven on assignment in earth. We must serve God where God has placed us until you return. Lord, help us to be faithful to the ministry, the specific area of life that you have stuck us in. Help us to be faithful there and to live out our calling as a believer in all the different spheres of society. Our pastor cannot reach this community by living out God's calling by himself, doing what he's supposed to do. And neither can any single one of us. But all of us together, we touch a whole multitude of people, a whole area of networks, all different kinds of businesses and interactions are specifically and uniquely ours. Lord, you've called us to transform this world through the power of Christ. 
Help us to do that one small step at a time by being faithful where you've put us, on the corner where we are. Lord, thank you for your, this text and the teaching that we should remain before God, with God, in the condition that we are in when we are called. Help us to find fulfillment in Christ and in that calling. And bless us as we go our ways today. In Jesus' name, amen.